This excellent medical student-led podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended to be used as medical advice under any circumstance. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Alert and Oriented, episode 29. We're super excited to be back. We have a really fun, really fun case for everyone today. This is Nick. With me, we have Dr. Grzynski and Dr. Abrams. I'm ready to help discuss this case. And then really exciting, we have two M3s here with us as discussants, Sarah and Sam. So it's really excited. We've had a lot of M4s lately, so excited to get back down to to M3s and, and show off your knowledge. I remember when I did this the first time about a little over a year ago, how, how awesome I thought it was and how fun. So looking forward that you guys get to go through that. Before we start, we'd love to have you guys introduce yourselves to our listeners. So Sarah, you can go ahead and just tell us a little about yourself. My name is Sarah. I'm a current third year, approaching the end of our third year. It's kind of hard to believe and really interested in internal medicine or pediatrics. I know I should have a better answer of what I want to do when I grow up by now. <laughs> Unfortunately, I do not, but really excited to be here. My name is Sam, also an M3. Very excited to be here, longtime listener. And I'm currently all over the place considering EM, IM, maybe MedPeds, but most recently, maybe EM, IM combined. I speak from experience. Don't feel pressured in what you want to do just yet. We're all still figuring it out as well. <laughs> Dr. Um, Abrams, you still interested in internal medicine? Mm -hmm. or still trying to decide what I could be when I grow up. <laughs> no, I'm maybe still, not, Dr. still interested in internal medicine, but all the things that you guys say and are looking at are, are, are equally as exciting. And the most important thing is that it's exciting for you. Also, Sarah and Sam have been loyal listeners, so this will be their <laughs> first time. Thank you guys for the first time here being discussed. Welcome. We'll kick off. Alcohol number one. First, we have our chief complaint. This is a 21-year-old male presented to the emergency department with fever in his chest and neck. So, so far, this is all we know about him. This is really broad, but does anyone want to tackle first thoughts here? First thought here, just starting with like demographics, 21-year-old male, so fairly young, which just would limit the differential, I guess, in my thought process. Also, fever stands out to me. So maybe something systemic, maybe something inflammatory or infectious. I love where you just started. I think that's so huge to bring up just with the demographics. I does like wanting to make sure that it doesn't like limit my differential with given the fact that he is on the younger spectrum of age. I love the fact that you brought up more, potentially more of a systemic or inflammatory picture. I'm caught up by some potential red flags just with the pain in his chest as like particularly striking and I'm wanting to ask some more questions about like acuity, like when this came on, like how concerned should I be right now? You notice like we have some potentially serious symptoms here in chest pain. We have fevers, which you said could be infectious or inflammatory. And then, yeah, we have headache, which could potentially localize pain to the, you know, the head region or central nervous system, but super broad. There's still a lot we don't know. Is you had mentioned acuity. Is there anything else you'd kind of want to know in terms of interval history or more questions that you would ask this patient? Would love to know which came first or if the, all these symptoms had like a similar onset to see which like organ system I want to start with. The tempo of the, yeah. the, core, of the disease for sure. Yeah, would love to know the progression. Sudden onset, was it more like indolent with like the pain and then the fever came as more of an acute manifestation. What's his past medical history? Does he have any other medical problems? Is this the first time this has happened? Recent travel, recent sick contacts, I think of as far as just like context. What are some red flag things we should get to pretty quickly? Pain in chest. I would love to like rule out a myocardial infarction or heart attack with a fever and headache. 
and pain in the neck. I love to rule out meningitis or more of a, those acute infectious cause. So those are two differentials that are coming up that could be ruled out pretty quickly if we're given enough workup done. Yeah, I completely agree with like, for sure the ACS has to be ruled out and then fever, headache, neck pain. Again, makes me think of meningitis. The fever kind of throws me off, but like neck pain, headache, maybe like, as you said, some neuroetiology, like the neck pain with headache, I kind of think of like carotid artery dissection, which probably isn't the case. Maybe you just went to the chiropractor. Maybe you just went to a chiropractor. <laughs> That's a great point about it. Are these like related or, or yeah. like, does, it, does he have chronic headaches and he just like has these other new manifestations and just a definitely- like signal versus noise. There you go. <laughs> Listen to you guys. All right. Well, I think that was a, a really good summary of, of this very limited information we have. So we'll move on. Just a little bit more of history. So we learned that this patient was well nine days earlier when he developed a sore throat at that time. And after several days of feeling ill, he went to a walk-in clinic. We had a rapid strep test, which was negative, and was told his symptoms were likely secondary to a virus. Then two days later, he continued to feel poorly. He developed a headache and then pain on the right side of his. He went to his primary care doctor. He didn't have any fevers at that time. On examination of his throat, it was erythematous. There were no exudates. He had a few mildly tender cervical lymph nodes. A repeat rapid strep test was negative. He was told that he likely had mononucleosis, told to take Tylenol for his pain and to keep hydrated. And, and then just as a reminder, this was all kind of nine days before his initial ER presentation which was for the fever, headache, neck pain, and then the chest pain. Does this change how you guys think or what does this add to the picture for you? If I had a previously healthy 21-year-old come in with a sore throat and presumably his vital signs, presumably they were normal or stable, then, and a rapid strep was negative, then I would also attribute his symptoms to some viral illness. And then two days later, he continues to feel poorly. So I feel like that kind of makes me think, okay, maybe it wasn't a viral illness. Is there something bacterial? Did some like viral URI transition into a bacterial infection? The headache and neck pain kind of progression makes me concerned about, again, like Sarah said, meningitis, but he was afebrile. And then ultimately they diagnosed him with mono. The unilateral neck pain is interesting. It seems to be sticking out a little bit more because it doesn't, it does fit in with like some of like the more like upper respiratory infection type symptoms, but it does seem to be like a more unique finding that individuals with mono may not typically have, or they know like neck, sore, they have sore throat mm -hmm. is pretty likely and does fit with the picture, but something to keep in mind for now, at least without further information. Mm -hmm. And... I'm wondering how hydrated he's staying and like how like the, the course of those nine days went for him. And I'm like curious to see if it's like continuing to progress and how like when he walked into the hospital emergency room like nine days later, what like went on that past week. Mm -hmm. And if he felt like he was getting better at any point. Mm -hmm. So one of the things you guys may be able to establish now is what was being talked about before, which is tempo, mm -hmm. right? So tempo means a lot. Mm -hmm. And so what do you think about the tempo of this illness? I mean, it's just a little under a week. He went from having a sore throat that was essentially not concerning to the providers that he saw to having 
neck pain, headache, the tender cervical lymph nodes. I feel like a viral course would have kind of been resolving by now. I mean, I always think you can think, you know, maybe hyperacute, acute, okay. subacute, chronic, and course, at the beginning of an illness, it's always acute, right? Yeah. But, but you have some time course here. And so, you know, I always like to think, so where, where might I put this illness within that time course? Perhaps acute. Would I you can, agree? I concur <laughs> with that statement. And I'm curious to see if, I don't know what the sensitivity or specificity of a rapid stress test is, but I'm wondering if there was any culture done for him. I know. Passion, yeah. mm. But I do agree with the fact that it apparent with a no previous medical history as well, like which just seems to be more of an acute picture that seems to be continuing, if not progressing. Yeah, so I think that, that that's, yeah, good point. I mean, obviously, because of the 90 course, not not like hyper acute. So when you had talked about things like ACS, originally before we had this information, I mean, obviously it would have been unlikely in this type of patient, but mm-hmm. you know, that something like that is less likely here, mm-hmm. and, and so yeah, I, I think I think yeah, you're you're absolutely right, but definitely we have some kind of background going into it, and then Sarah, you had mentioned it's like throat culture, so just, just I guess very you know that's so, what I was going to ask <laughs> yeah yeah so really just for our for our listeners and for everyone else a very brief summary if someone comes into your office and this is usually for like you know some uncomplicated sore throat the question is like do we culture their throat do we start them on antibiotics always a difficult question or can we treat this like a viral illness just watch and wait and so we usually think about factors like is there exudate or swelling on the tonsils which in this patient we didn't have any of that is there tenderness or swollen to the cervical lymph nodes and particularly anteriorly Mm -hmm. so we did have some tenderness in that area is this does this patient have a fever so far this patient hasn't had a fever and then is there a cough present or absence with the thought that a cough present would suggest maybe more of a bacterial and if you have a cough, that could suggest viral and, and kind of put you lower on the criteria for this. And so usually this is scored. You get a point for being between ages 3 and 14 because that's most likely when you're like likely to have those bacterial throat infections. It's more likely to be viral later in life. Of course, this is just a rough guideline, but usually, you know, if you have a score of 3 or something, then it's like, or even 2, it's like we can culture this. They did end up culturing this patient. It grew, it grew strep G, but then this patient eventually came back to the emergency room. But that's, yeah, it's a good question, just kind of like in, a, in an otherwise healthy person, what should we do about it? Shout out to Uncle Bob if you're listening. Yes, Uncle Bob has been here, gave grand rounds here many, many, many years ago. And so this is Bob Centaur, who is the, he's down at University of Alabama, Birmingham, and he is the person who first described this clinical prediction rule for 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 sore throats. So some more history. Two days later, we presented to the ER, which we had said with his fever, headache, and neck pain. His sore throat had actually been improving, but he developed pleuritic chest pain and some mild cough. He had no remarkable past medical history. He was a student at a local college, took no medications. He drank alcohol primarily on the weekends, was currently not sexually active, and had no history of prior STIs. So we learn a little bit here, and we've confirmed now he has no medical history. And really, yeah, it looks like no pre-existing risk factors, but we're learning that this chest pain now is pleuritic and now there's a cough as well. So maybe some localization to the chest more so than we had originally thought. But yeah, what do you guys, what do you guys make of this? Obviously, maybe not a viral, viral sore throat, but the ER presentation here. It stands out to me. So is there some like serositis, like pericarditis or pleuritis, PE? That is like the main thing that really stands out to me at this point. His sore throat has improved, which is interesting. So what's your differential looking like now? How have things changed? 
so that AC has to move farther down on our list for sure. Mm-hmm. It's nothing's for sure in medicine, so they will say it's moved down. You guys had mentioned meningitis as a, mm-hmm. I guess, red flag. How do you feel about that now? I'm still willing to keep it. I'm still like wondering if it's like neck pain as on like with flexion or extension. Is it mm-hmm. just when he's just get a little bit more sense of like the quality of that neck pain yeah. would help with the differential as well in terms of whether to move the meningitis more as a more probable or less probable. I just read this not knowing we were on a podcast that's going to reveal some, you know, exciting diagnosis. I would say like, okay, his sore throat's improved. He has a mild cough and he has some pain when he's breathing in. And that makes me think like costochondritis, like if he is having a cough now and the fact that he doesn't have remarkable past medical history, I'm like kind of reassured there as well. So just trying to like play devil's advocate that this doesn't have to be something crazy. I know that's not the case probably. And I love keeping it broad and just making sure that we don't miss or most likely is as well. Mm -hmm. And common things are always common for a reason. So I think that was really well reasoned. We'll see where it goes. That's a great point too. And plus, I mean, right now we're just talking. We, we don't have the patient in front of us and, and we'll, we'll get into vitals and exam later. But I think that's a good point. Like without the ability to see the patient, see like how much this pain is, how much distress it's causing. This mm-hmm. on paper really does look like it could be something like a costochondritis or some post-viral inflammation. So I think that's a really good, really good point. Also, just in regards to no, no past medical history, does that alter the way you think about certain diagnoses? And, and of course, you know, sometimes... There's no, it's more no known past medical history, mm-hmm. right? But I guess for now we can treat it as no, no remarkable past medical history. Does that, you know, how does that make you think about this? I would say that makes me think like, I don't have to think about maybe opportunistic infections as much or anything crazy like that, or kind of like left field or zebra. Like I can think more common things as Kevin said. That's it. Also curious about his social history, just because he doesn't have like any remarkable known medical history. I'm wondering like the quantity of alcohol that he's drinking, is that playing, does that have any impact on it? Is he's not currently sexually active, his past like sexual encounters or something to be probe a little bit more there. So, but so like keeping it open-minded, but not having to go chase down, like just like going with what's like presented with us in front of us for sure. So I think what I got from what you guys just talked about was you risk stratified this patient as to being low risk of unusual infections and then his activities as being low risk for other types of infections that we think of. So I see that you've moved him into this bucket. You said that very beautifully, like much more succinctly than us. And, yeah, and with the information <laughs> we have, I, I don't think I would, I don't think I would disagree with you to be honest. Like I think yeah. you guys have done a really good job of, of not jumping to any conclusions and kind of just dealing with what's in front of you. So let's reveal more information then and see if your mind changes. So initially his vitals in exam. So he did appear to be in mild distress. He had a temperature of 100.7, respiratory rate 14. He was borderline tachycardic at 100. Blood pressure was normal at 122 over 78. He had no photophobia. On exam of his throat, it appeared inflamed, but there was no exudates. His neck was tender on the right side of the trachea along the line of the sternocleidomastoid. There were no meningeal signs. His cervical lymph nodes were tender and enlarged. Cardiorespiratory and abdominal exam were normal, aside from that mild tachycardia. There was no rash and there was no joint swelling. Is there a particular finding here that speaks out more? There may or may not be, but there, I, I'd say that this adds a little bit, a little bit of context to our, yeah. to our case here. 
Dr. Abrams loves to say, what's the most unusual finding of the bunch? I think I have one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's see. An older male gentleman's name is coming to boy. I don't know if that's like a vertical. No, I'm like, don't want to like rule it out, but if that's like a, at the neck to this right of the trachea. Uh-huh. Oh, are you thinking like a supraclavicular node? Potentially, don't want to rule it out. It just seems to be like the location-wise as a potential option, but not that I'm like mm-hmm. honing in or anchoring myself to that. It could just be an inflamed area. Mm. I can see that he is actually indeed slightly febrile, so it's not just a slightly feverish that he's feeling or subjective fever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, neck was tender to the right of the trachea, but no mass. And this is separate from the cervical lymph node tenderness. Is that correct? Yeah. So, and, and that, I mean, in terms of the exam that was documented, yeah, that's a good point though. Like sometimes we we're, we're palpating around the neck. We think we're, we're at a node, but it's not a node. Sometimes it is. So like knowing the anatomy of the nodes is important, but from what we have here is nodes are tender and enlarged. But yeah, you, you, I think you did a really good job of, I guess, localizing kind of more to this right side of the trachea and, you know, something that's unilateral on the neck can make us think differently than something that's bilateral. Also right side of the trachea, neck tenderness, like, I'm, and I'm sure that that probably would suggest to you guys against something like meningitis, but still, we don't know. No meningeal sign. Which is comforting. That is comforting. Yeah, it, I guess it makes me start thinking about all of the neck mass possibilities. I don't know why I keep going to mass because it doesn't say mass. It just says tenderness. It's unusual to have localized tenderness in the neck, though. Right. So I think you're right to hone in on that. A mass. Perhaps. Are there specific types of things that you think about when you think about like neck pain or neck mass or something that localizes to one side? Potentially like a, an abscess of some mm-hmm. sort. He's in the age range where I'm not really thinking like a retropharyngeal abscess. That's like a, in my head, that's like a little bit younger, like four to seven range, but it could be possible to have it as an adult as well, but more like of a help me out with a, other abscess that I'm thinking of, Sam. Peritonsular. Yes, I think that's it. Thank you for that. <laughs> Phone a friend. I appreciate Phone it. A friend. I'm always here. I did like a week on ENT, and he was like, "Oh, you know the kitten's mnemonic, right?" And I said, "Sir, I don't know what you're talking about, <laughs> kittens." But I think it's like a mnemonic for neck masses. I have it up in front of me. I actually think this is interesting. Yeah, so I'll just share it. it. Yeah, um, or if Kevin, you want? No, go. go. Yeah, yeah. So. K would be congenital, so you're right, that is tricky. So we see, but congenital abnormalities. So we think about like, you know, you, it's probably fresh on your mind because you're in peds now, but those brachial cleft cysts, mm. dermoid cysts, things that convert to thyroidosal like, duct cysts, yeah. those things in, can get inflamed during infections as well. And then infectious inflammatory would be the I, T is trauma. Trauma. And then toxic, so thyroid toxicosis. E would be endocrine, so thyroid or parathyroid neoplasms and is neoplasms and then s would be systemic disease mm-hmm. so yeah i like that i think that monics are all all of these are great Kittens way to think came in handy for something i love the structure all right so yeah i just want to say you know i know kevin usually likes to wait after the after the next aliquot but i actually think this is a good place to stop and sort of recap in your own brains based so now you have the entire history and physical, is that right? Yeah, yeah. So you have the entire history and physical here, and maybe it's time to put it together. You'll have another chance to collect stuff, but this is a, this is a good time, I think, particularly for this case. So maybe a, a, a mental or a quick, a quick summary. Sure. 
So we have a 21-year-old male with no significant known medical history presenting with a nine-day history of progressively worsening throat mm -hmm. inflammation with some additional signs of fever and chest pain and tent area to the right of the trachea. <laughs> it's a very <laughs> haphazardly placed together problem statement. I would love to see if there's anything that you would find particularly relevant that you would like to add or any additions that you'd like to make. No, I love that. I thought you hit a lot of high points. Did you say otherwise healthy? You probably did. But yeah, just highlighting that he has no past medical history. And I think you kind of incorporated the physical exam findings as well. So right now, maybe we could add that he, he's febrile, borderline tachycardic, but otherwise seems hemodynamically stable. We don't get any real clues of him like being in some sort of urgent state. Good. I, I go back to what Kevin said before also and say, putting this all together, what, what are the things that stand out here? And there's one piece of this that kind of stands out to me that I, I don't know. I go to you guys and maybe I'll go to everybody else sitting here and, you know, not having thought about this case for a while really sort of stands out to me now. Mm. Oh. Are we considering also like that Fluoridic chest pain. That no, we haven't got to that. <laughs> we haven't gotten anywhere there yet. Plain. I really hone in on following uh, along the line of the sternocleidomastoid. Really, just stands out. It's unusual. I wouldn't expect that for something localized. It's kind of suggesting something else is going on. Yeah. And I'm thinking the strange thing is he had is is during this whole thing his sore throat's better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Because so it really started out as a sore throat syndrome, which everybody just treated like the usual sore throat syndrome, and then it kind of went, that part kind of went away. Went away or moved. Or moved, yes, I don't know. Moved. Yeah, so, yeah, definitely have to think of it differently now. I think you guys did a great job of summarizing what's going on here. Now, thinking about taking that summary and putting together some next, next steps. If you're the physician in this scenario, what types of labs or imaging or workup would you want to do to further help elicit your diagnosis? We can start off with the CBC. To Take a look at his white count, see if there's any signs of inflammation. Go ahead. You can just tack on that CMP as well. I would get a good sense of what his liver enzymes are doing, get a sense of like if he's like, but more so I really want to be able to visualize this neck, especially along the area of the SCM, because that's easier for me to say than sternocleidomastoid. But I'm trying to think of the best way to visualize it. Does a point of care ultrasound, would that do anything? I mean, that could show us like, an abscess. You mentioned abscess earlier. Maybe tack on like a CTV of the <laughs> neck. I think that's a great thought to get imaging. I think without the patient in front of you, ultrasound or CT, I don't, like it's hard to hard to choose one. I think they're both good options here. So yeah, I mean, yeah, I think that's I think that's that's great. Is there anything else you would image? Um, he's still having chest pain. Yeah, yeah, he's still having his he's still having some pleuritic chest pain. Okay, so I would like an EKG. Okay. And. A chest X-ray. Great. Yeah, yeah, I think those are all those are all great things. I, in fact, I'm pretty sure this is all exactly what the team did. So, would it be too much to throw in some tropinins, even yeah, though we know that, <laughs> even though that we know that chest pain is we're less thinking less likely the acute uh, coronary syndrome. I, I and there's I, a lot of reasons I why tropinins can rise. But. I think that you've done exactly yeah. what. The team what are you gonna do when it comes back elevated? I know this is a favorite <laughs> point. Trend it. <laughs> 
What about a D-dimer? No. And, uh, <laughs> but doing so good until I threw out the trope. <laughs> Sorry, Sam. I'm just trying this down. So these are some notable findings. So they did get that CBC. It showed the hemoglobin of 12, so slightly low, but nothing crazy. And then white blood cell count of 13.8, so we have a mild elevation there. And platelets are normal at 305. On the CMP, renal function and electrolytes were normal. There was a mild elevation of liver transaminases. Albumin was 2.9. So slightly low, CRP was 105. We'll say EKG and troponins were normal. And then chest X-ray shows numerous peripheral pulmonary nodules and small bilateral pleural effusion. Won't give you neck imaging yet, but we'll just give you some of this information. Definitely some stuff here that stands out. What do you think of this chest X-ray? Got peripheral pulmonary nodules. That scares me. Feel free to talk about anything else too, but yeah. Yeah. By the chest X-ray, the fact that there are numerous, numerous nodules, I'm thinking like metastases, metastases immediately come to mind. And perhaps that could be like a malignancy related plural effusion kind of picture. Right. Peripheral, I honestly don't know enough to know if that's like characteristic of like metastatic pulm lesions or not. But those are my initial reactions to the chest x-ray. Just going off the chest center, like you mentioned, like especially like around the periphery, um, if we are thinking like a malignancy, like like a lung neoplasm, I know like adenocarcinoma and things of that nature tend to be around the periphery, less so like small cell in the central location. But again, mm -hmm. keeping in fact like his like age and 21 year old, I don't know, his like smoking history, <laughs> if there's any like alpha one antitrypsin deficiency out there. We'll talk a little bit later on about that peripheral distribution. But I think that's a good point. You're not just looking at pulmonary nodules, you're looking at where they are. So mm -hmm. yeah, like mentioned, great point. Something like an adenocarcinoma tend to be maybe more peripheral, but hard to tell in a chest x-ray for sure. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think those are all great points. And then in terms of additional information, does anything else here suggest or go against anything you're thinking? We got a little CRP elevation. Yeah. The albumin and transaminase levels are interesting. We haven't heard of like anything that has really made us say liver etiology. I don't think any of us, either of us have mentioned that. He is like a drinker on the weekend. Is that right? A social right. drinker. Again, it says mildly elevated. So is it significant? I don't know. Albumin is down though. So, I mean, there's significant enough of a process to affect production and CRP is elevated, so something inflammatory, something is upset right now. Yeah. And this is, this, is a, this is a tough question. You may not, I mean, what does, how, do you, how do you put the neck, neck pain into this context too? Something that's, I mean, this is not easy for sure. Like there's a lot going on in a lot of different places, but just to kind of tie it back to our picture of the patient. Mm -hmm. Always good to, good to come back to the patient. Yes, we're not just looking at labs in isolation here. Mm -hmm how it relates exactly to the SNCC pain is a phenomenal question that I'm actively trying to think through right now. Maybe we have more meds. Okay. More meds. Mm. Oh, it's a possibility that this could have, that this could have moved to that area as well. Yes, I like the medical terminology for that a lot better than moved. Glad his kidneys are doing okay. <laughs> That's <laughs> pretty good. Yeah. They'll yeah. hold on until they don't, right? Nick, what do you make of the albumin? It's a good question. I mean, sometimes it's hard to tell. It's, 
it's a little it's a little low there, but sometimes albumin can suggest a chronic a chronic process. Like you know, is is this patient sick? Like does this patient have you know? There's a mild elevation of transaminases. So does this patient have some kind of liver dysfunction? Albumin is like a marker of liver function. What, was, what about albumin in the setting of inflammation or infection? Isn't it an acute phase reacted? It's a negative phase reactant. Negative phase reactant, okay. So we're going to have... Heaven knows I love albumin. It's one of my <laughs> favorite of all tests. I think it's just such a great test. Yeah, so... So when I see this, I see inflammation infection until proven otherwise. You got elevated... You got leukocytosis with a very high CRP and albumin low in someone who I wouldn't expect it to be low. And I kind of explained the transaminases as maybe being just related to his alcohol use. And, and again, in the context of a, what kind of illness did you guys say it was? The tempo? Acute. That's actually, yeah, I, I usually I usually think of, of albumin in the context of like, you know, maybe some kind of chronic disease, but I learned something new. Yeah. So I, I, I don't actively think about it like that. So and the like thing. slightly bumped, well, I shouldn't say bumped because that implies higher, but the slightly low hemoglobin after you guys kind of framed it as like maybe is there a chronic process underlying this yeah. acute process is it like anemia of chronic disease he's a male so i wouldn't expect his hemoglobin to be low or all right to see the the liver and the lung are also connected i feel and not to like put all my weight on one <laughs> alpha trypsin but it could have a connection between the two of them yeah that's good pattern recognition all right, so for the course, patient was started on vancomycin and zosin and admitted to the hospital. CT of the neck and chest show abnormal filling contrast or filling of contrast in the right internal jugular vein extending from C3 to the thoracic inlet. There was no drainable abscesses in the neck. There were multiple cavitating lesions within both lungs and small bilateral pleural effusions. So here we've learned, so here we've gotten our neck imaging now and we've also got some more some more detailed imaging of our chest. And then we learned he started on antibiotics. Did his face have any like plethoric, plethoric right. changes? Why do you ask that? It's a good question. There's abnormal feeling in that right IGAV, that internal jugular vein area. I'm wondering if there's like this superior pancose yeah. involvement or superior sulcus. Like a SVC kind of syndrome. Correct. Yes, where there's just like more of a engorgement on like a unilateral side that could explain a patient's like unilateral tenderness. That's a great point, yeah. I love that thought. That's not where my brain went initially. So thank you. Are you thinking like a mass compressing this internal jugular vein? Potentially, but I want to yeah. make sure that we look at all the potential mm -hmm. reasons why they could be abnormal filling. I feel like I haven't seen that in the yeah. context before. It's just like putting it into like imaging and like just trying to keep the patient mm -hmm. physical there's no drainable abscesses, so that's reassuring. And I feel like earlier you mentioned retropharyngeal abscess, and it's tender, he's febrile, so. Can you close the book on that one for now? We'll see. Cavitating lesions in the lung, what? Yeah. Cavitating makes me think of like squamous, but that also is just my step kind of like linkage showing. Yeah, and I, I actually, I know our listeners can't see this, but I'll add a picture of something, how this would look. So we just have a, a picture here of a, an axial slice of a CT with some cavitating lesions. We see their peripheral. And so, yeah, like, I guess you, so you mentioned maybe like a malignancy, what other, what other types of things could you be thinking about when we have like a cavitary lesion in the lung? I don't know. I just thought of like as, aspergillus or TB. Yeah. So maybe infectious as well. Mm -hmm. Do you like think more indolent. 
do you think that this overall picture is suggesting infection or malignancy more? Some of the more like acute onset of the presentation makes me want to lean with like an infectious process. But mm -hmm. I know like some of those infectious processes, processes that we brought up, by we I mean Sam, or have a more of a medical history involvement as like, I feel like for Aspergillus, like do they have asthma? It didn't seem like they did or things like, like cystic fibrosis or things of that nature. Mm -hmm. So it makes me think that potentially it could be more of a, so I don't want to rule out infection, but it just seems like some of the risk factors for small things like, that we met, Liz mentioned, may not be present on for this patient in particular. Yeah, that's a good point. You mentioned like TB as a cause of, of cavitating lung lesions, but there's nothing about this patient that we would suggest in terms of exposures or immunocompromised that would that be that. know what. Exactly, yeah. So keep an open mind. But yeah, I think that's a good point there. Any thoughts, Dr. Abrams here? No, I have all sorts of thoughts for you guys. I think the question I ask is maybe... I don't know if I'm reframing or just restating what Nick said before. In this fact that it's all over the place, okay? So it's not, you know, listen, his neck pain was on one side. You said that's unusual. What causes that? And his lung stuff is all over the place. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so does that ring any bells for you guys or, 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 or push, you in a, push you in a way to think a certain way? That makes me think of like something seeding something like hematogenously. I want to get blood cultures. <laughs> I want to know. That makes me think of like endocarditis, I guess. Yeah. And septic emboli specifically. Okay. And do these look like septic emboli? Uh, could be? In yeah, my I, many years of no, experience. You're, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, like in terms of we have it on both sides of the lungs and you said this could be some kind of septic phenomenon. If we do think about like peripheral lesions and we think about something that would be like a septic emboli, mm -hmm. usually these are like really small, mm -hmm. um, as opposed to like a huge blood clot coming up from the leg that can, you know, maybe get into one of our proximal pulmonary arteries. These septic phenomenon tend to be really small and so they go really, really peripherally. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes on imaging, you'll see like peripheral lesions in the lungs. So yeah, that's, I think that's a really good point, especially here because it's bilateral. And then, yeah, if, and you mentioned endocarditis and where do you think if if these if there's something that's embolic, where do you think it could be coming from? From the right heart. Okay. If it's landing in the lungs, he said just alcohol, but it didn't make a comment on whether he has a history of IV drug use. That wasn't mentioned, but that's what I would want to know, I guess. That's neat. That's a great point. But going back to like, the history too, and we have weird findings in the right IJ. So how does that fit in the picture? Uh -huh. Quick anatomy, so, yeah, throwback. If we think about that area, right? So we have the IJ, which has this filling defect in it. Mm -hmm. And then you had mentioned like carotid artery dissection. So like in that carotid sheath, we have the internal jugular vein and then the carotid artery and then there's cranial nerves. Mm -hmm. And we've localized something on the imaging to the, to the vein. Mm -hmm. Where does the vein go? Yeah. Did we do a neuroexy? I hope so. I <laughs> hope so. So there, there were no focal findings on the okay. narrow exam. Okay, that's good. Where does the IJ go? It's venous, right? So blood's returning to yes. the right okay. heart. Yes. yes, so it's yes. returning blood from the brain. So, so what does that mean? Well, I guess you could say, then where does the blood go? Yeah. <laughs> After it gets to the heart, where does it go? Why don't we... Why don't we <laughs> talk about some blood cultures and ultrasound here, and then we could talk about it further, but... 
I think you guys are you guys are knocking on the door. So the, an ultrasound of the neck showed soft tissue swelling there on the right side, some reactive lymphadenopathy, and right internal jugular vein thrombosis. And then blood cultures from admission grew Fusobacterium necroforum. One of my favorite of all bacteria. Uh, <laughs> one of Dr. Abrams' favorite, maybe a lesser known for sure. I can't say I'm very familiar with that. Okay. Monkey card, I have since forgotten. <laughs> Wow. Okay. I was off. We were. I was. But I'm glad to say I brought his cold. No. Yeah. So aside from the speciation, how do you kind of put together these final findings into everything else that we've talked about? How do you pathophysiologically explain everything that's right. gone on? Was there a primary infection somewhere in the neck that then moved hematogenously through the heart to the lungs, seeing the lungs? Did that happen? I think that may very well have, that have happened. Yeah, yeah. Something could happen. It's, uh, so yeah, I mean that would that would be a definitely like an explanation. Like we have something in our neck, an internal jugular vein here that could that could be causing some kind of embolic event. If if the internal jugular vein, which is right sided, would mm -hmm. connect just like a to the right heart. Yeah. So yeah, no, that's great. That's great. And then yep, yeah, and putting it all together, it started off with sore throat, right? And then it went to right sided neck pain. Uh, so we're getting some kind of movement tempo and then Moving we had pleuritic on. chest pain with known cavitary lesions so well, are we able to explain all of the findings in a sequential order nonetheless what do you guys think any bells being rung here or kind of comfortable with your path of his explanation and then we can get into the nitty-gritty well, what bells are ringing in your head Sarah? i feel like fusobacterium should be ringing a bell yeah it <laughs> feels like it should be well I will say you guys have you guys have essentially figured it all out, minus the name of the disease, which um. is not common. So we'll just say it's called Lemire, Lemire syndrome. Uh, yeah, this is you've heard of that. Wah, wah. I've honestly, yeah, seen that name. I can't say I've heard of Lemire's with Fusobacterium. That linkage is non-existent for me. There's a card I've been ignoring. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> Yeah, so, I mean, so this is Lemire syndrome. So uh, this goes by another name. Okay. And I actually think the other name, before you go to your part, Nick, is is, is actually, and I hadn't thought about it, but there's another name for this this condition, and it's called anginal sepsis. That's okay, right. so mm -hmm. that's the other name for it. And then the question is, is what does post-anginal mean, right? Because... We started talking about chest pain, right? And when mm -hmm. you think of chest pain, that's the word that comes that comes to mind. But the question then is, is what does angina really mean? And why do they call this post-anginal? Why do they call this a post-anginal condition? Yeah. I, I, got, I got the two guys to the right of me on the hook with this one, <laughs> which is so... And actually, I actually think this, may, the, the, this condition was called post-anginal before we started calling angina what we call. So it really does come down to what does angina mean? And what it really means is, you know, I think, I think it comes from, you know, Greek or something like that. It, it means strangle, but it means pain. So this is a post-pain syndrome. Just like this guy had, he started with a sore throat and his sore throat went away. So it's, it's sepsis that occurs following the, what you would think would be the inciting event. Huh. Right, that is so. Just like you said, it started here and then it went somewhere else, mm -hmm. and the original problem seemed to fade away. And yet, 
then he got really sick. So what is Lemire syndrome? This is, I've learned a lot researching this. And, and so I think it's definitely a unifying diagnosis here, but, but one that, that is rare. It's a rare disease. And most commonly, it's going to affect healthy, younger adults. So those teenage to 20 years, that's the most common. And, and most of the, yeah, these patients are mostly healthy. And so, so something of this severity to happen in a healthy patient, although it's rare, something we should really know about. So it's normally caused by this bacteria, this fusiform bacteria. And although there are other, there are other infectious causes, but this would be the most, the most common and linked in the literature. And, and so usually what we have is we have a healthy individual who presents with some type of throat pain or pharyngitis. The exact type of infection we, that precedes it is, is unknown, but there seems to be some kind of hematogenous or lymphatic or direct invasion into this carotid sheath area where you have the internal jugular vein and that's the preceding event that causes this cascade. And then due to this irritation of the internal jugular vein, you get platelet aggregation, you get inflammatory factors. This causes like some type of septic blood clot, which can then embolize as it happened in this patient and primarily embolizes to the to the lungs and can cause these cavitary lesions. So pulmonary manifestations, I found this really interesting, are essentially 100% in, in this Lemire syndrome. So pretty much every single patient I was reading anywhere from 90 to 97% of patients with this septic thrombophilitis to the neck, they get this, this lung manifestation. It, it, unfortunately for our patient, that was manifest as these cavitary lesions. So, the, in, so in terms of the time course, usually the sore throat starts, proceeds one to three weeks with this manifestation of this larger syndrome. And then this fuso, this, this fusobacterium is isolated from 82% of cases, mostly in blood cultures. After pulmonary involvement, large joints are the second most in common. So similar to like something like septic endocarditis, we could have embolization to large joints. And then involvement of the nervous system is actually rarer than you would think. So very, very rare. I think I was reading anywhere from like, like less than 5%. It kind of goes about the direction of blood flow in the vein going down towards towards more of the heart and other organs. When we think about differential diagnosis of someone who presents like this, I think you, name, you named it right, right-sided endocarditis. It's definitely a differential diagnosis for this. And then anytime we have something in the neck and findings like this, we also want to ask like, is there a catheter? Because another common cause would be like catheter-associated septic thrombophlebitis. And then yes, malignancy as well. Just because this, this patient is young and they have a blood clot in in one of their like large central veins, we want to we want to figure out why that's not normal. So in terms of treating, these patients are treated with an- antibiotics. This is an anaerobic organism mostly, and they, they tend to get better. And then when we think about like anticoagulation, because the literature is really unsure. Usually, we only if there's like serious measures would we consider like anticoagulating the patients on this. But yeah, I thought this was a very interesting syndrome of of infectious neck pain leading to pulmonary symptoms and. Thanks for the case, Dr. Abrams. Yeah. And yeah, I, how'd it go for you guys? How was it? Well, I'm never going to forget Lemire syndrome. It's going to stick for no. now. I'm pretty sure that was a yeah. great learning it is case. A, you know, I say two things. One is, you know, to me, there's two interesting things about this, about, about this case. And in this case, I'll say now, I had many years ago. And, and I've actually... And actually, Dr. Williams was just telling me they just had a case. He just had a case of it, which was not the fusobacteria, by mm-hmm. the way. So there are other bacteria that cause it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, so there's the throat angina syndromes, which is Lemire's. And what's the other one? Ludwig's. Ludwig's, oh. right? Oh. So it's another angina. Use that word angina, which is just kind of a cellulitis that extends deep into those, into those bases. Mm-hmm. And then it was... It was 
this morning I was speaking with Dr. Baker. We were talking about about a totally different, it's about somebody who had one of these big sort of unilateral mass syndromes. And in a young person, I'll, I'll ask Kevin and Nick, because the first thing I said is, oh, it could be this. So this is a necrotizing. So there's necro, there's lymphadenitis syndromes in the neck. And, and it's sort of these unique ones. One of them is, is this disease called Kikuchi's, right? Which I don't know if you ever heard that. That's another... Yeah. Another boardsy type type syndrome. Yeah, scrofula. We did scrofula, scrofula yeah. we did. It's you know, yeah, I had somebody with, yeah. I don't know if one of you you weren't I was probably the time before you were on service, I had somebody who had who had chronic granulomatous disease and those people I didn't know this, but this is what it came in with, and they tend to get recurrent necrotizing lymphadenitis of unknown etiology. Mm -hmm. So there you don't you culture it, you have no idea what it is. But you know, so there's the what are the Diseases of the spaces of the neck, and then what are the what are the what are the the neck the lymphadenitis the unilateral lymphadenitis of the neck syndromes, and there's a little it's hard to believe there's a little differential diagnosis for each of them. Mm -hmm. You guys were great, by the way. You really, really were great. Thank you for having me. <laughs> it was a pleasure, really. <laughs> Definitely a ride and a journey. <laughs> and this one all tied back to pathophys. Yeah, so once, once you're able to walk through that, I think you guys figured out how everything was connected. <laughs> were able to unify the findings despite not remembering the name. Yeah. The name you got just, to the right place. The name, the, the name is just a name. I mean, <laughs> that the probably Lemire will be, he did something bad and they'll change it to something <laughs> else. Right? <laughs> Seems, yeah. All right. Well, that's episode 29 for everyone. Hope you enjoyed it. Thanks again to our discussant, Sarah and Sam. You guys did an awesome job. And we will be back soon for episode 30. Thanks again for listening. Person, time, and place. See you next time.